In 2018, the Governmental Panel on Climate Change released a special report about the impacts of global warming reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level. This special report caught headlines around the world, and it became an important theme at the COP24. Our guest today was an attendee of this international UN meeting. My name is Tina Yonju Oh. Uh, I'm a full-time grad student at Dalhousie, and I'm a climate justice organizer. She is an award-winning environmentalist, an organizer, and above all, she was one of my closest friends growing up. We recorded this episode one week after she attended COP24 in Poland when we were back in Edmonton visiting our family. We actually recorded this in my parents' house. Also, please forgive my raspy voice. I had a cold during this interview. In this episode, we talk about how she got involved with Divest Mount Allison, what she was doing at COP24, and what it means to be a feminist killjoy. This episode contains swearing, so you have been warned. This is Postico Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Thank you so much for coming on our show today, Tina. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. In your spare time, besides being a badass environmentalist, what do you do in your spare time so we could get a sense of who you are? Yeah, I am a full-time grad student yeah. uh, at Dalhousie University. That's on uh, unceded Mi'kmaq territory in a place called Jabukduk, uh, which is now referenced as Halifax, Nova Scotia. In the summer, I'm a community gardener and a beekeeper. Uh, that keeps me really busy during the summer months. And then otherwise, most of the organizing I do is unpaid. Uh, so that's kind of the organizing I have to do on top of school and unpaid work. Um, so I'm currently working with a group of really rad people to create a, uh, a convergence called Power Shift Young and Rising. It'll be the largest climate gathering of young people across the country and will be uh, skill sharing uh, and learning everything from direct action tactics to how to run electoral politics. Um, and electoral organizing. Could you explain to our listeners who don't, who aren't familiar with the term organizing? So could you explain that? Sure. I think it really started with maybe some tension also around uh, what we refer to and what we think of when we think of activists. I think the way that I see organizing is it comes from much more of a community level orientation where we are organizing for our communities and we're organizing particularly for marginalized people within our communities. Um, and the way that I think organizing or rather the, where that term organizing comes from is um, a sense of building something outside the systems that are oppressing people. Other than organizing, are there any other ways that people can challenge the system? Definitely. I think we need allies literally everywhere we go through. So there's people who work within the system. Um, we do need politicians on our side, too. Um, and they choose the route of working within the system, um, of making change through legislation and things like that. Uh, that's not the organizing that I do. Um, the type of organizing that I'm interested in is system change, um, where we are uh, rejecting kind of the state 
and uh, the oppressions that maybe the state carries. But I do recognize that like, yeah, we we need allies everywhere and um, all all those uh, strategies and tactics are important. Is there any uh, specific politician that you think is a model when it comes to being an ally? Yeah. Um, well, everyone really loves Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez right now in the States. Um, and AOC is um, actually, she found her roots through community organizing. So she's a community organizer and has been, um, but has taken the route of um, making kind of those direct legislative changes. And she's really making quite a landslide in the States right now. Back to the fair time question, what kind of bees do you work with? <laughs> <laughs> I work with honeybees. This past summer, I managed over um, around 65 to 75 hives. So quite a few. 65 hives, does that mean that there's 65 queens? Like I'm, I have no clue what yep, goes into beekeeping. Exactly, <laughs> so one queen per hive. Exactly. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's a lot of queens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so... I met you intermittently over the years, like after we graduated from high school. I think the time that we really hung out like still like consistently was like since high school. And then four years later, we graduated. And the next thing I knew, you're like this award winning activist I see on Facebook. What happened? When did this start? Uh, that's a good question, because um, now I, I can kind of look back at it um, and think about how I came to be where I am right now. So we graduated high school in 2014. And um, a few months later, I moved to New Brunswick to start university. At Mount Allison. At Mount Allison. And 2014 was a really significant year in Alberta, uh, particularly because we just had a major oil crash that year. Mm -hmm. And when you have this really unsustainable single industry economy, like we do in Alberta, um, when you feel a recession, you feel it really mm -hmm. tough. Yeah. Um, and that was also only a few years after the 2008 recession. So we were just kind of healing a little bit from that. And then we just like had another oil crash. Mm -hmm. Um, so I got to university and the next thing I knew there were so many people in my community that were losing jobs. And there were so many people from high school who, graduated high school thinking that they could easily get a job in Fort McMurray and then struggling to find something. They were struggling to find work, um, which is kind of an oxymoron, I think, when people think of Alberta, because especially coming out from east, there's so many people from out east that move to Alberta. Um, and so I think that really challenged my understanding of um, Alberta's economy, but also the economy that we grew up in. Um, and so I got to, yeah, I guess that was like a really big turning point for me, um, realizing how much the, in, like how much this industry employed so many people in, in our communities, um, how unprotected workers were from unions because big oil does not like unions. Mm -hmm. um, and understanding also how unpredictable the economy was. Uh, we think Alberta's economy is strong. Um, and I think the last, last couple of years even I mean, last few years um, has really showcased that it's anything but predictable. So that was a big moment for me in terms of uh, getting involved with the divestment campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, so the divestment movement, I think we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, essentially, 
we are challenging our institutions that we're a part of to divest their investments within the fossil fuel industry uh, because we don't see that uh, making profit off of the destruction of the earth is an ethical thing to do and we don't see our public institutions being part of that. I feel like I grew up in like a very similar circumstance but I didn't really jump into organizing right I feel like there's still a little bit more is there like (laughs) like just like, did someone bring you into it, into um, divestment Mount A, or was it more you saw a poster and you just chose to? So the divestment campaigns have been going happening around post-secondary campuses for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this year is approaching its sixth or seventh year in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I would have gotten involved, it was kind of in its earlier steps, like year two, three. Um, that was a big moment in pulling me into organizing um, because it was like right on campus. It was so personal. We, as students, could see ourselves actually making changes within our own post-secondary institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really, the timing of that was definitely an important part of how I got involved. Um, you served as a core organizer for Divestment Mount Allison. Um, could you talk a bit about that group that you were with? the size of the group, um, the energy, and what you guys were trying to achieve at Mount Allison? Definitely. So like I said, the divestment Mm -hmm. campaign and the divestment movement, just in general, we are placing power within um, young people to make tangible changes within their own institutions. Uh, So for particularly the university, it's Um, the context is really important because we're learning about the truth of climate science and climate change in the classroom. Mm -hmm. We, I mean, to, to assume that also like, I mean, we don't deny science in the classroom, right? We're in university. And so there's hypocrisy when the institution is investing money into these big industries while teaching the truth of climate science and climate change to young people. Because young people are the biggest generation to be burdened with climate change. Um, We are going to live through the climate crisis. And I mean, we are in a climate crisis right now. Um, So Divest Mountain is just one of hundreds of campaigns across the world um, to challenge uh, Mount Allison University to divest its investments. Mount Allison University is a small liberal arts university. So there is a tendency for uh, liberal arts universities to be sympathetic to divestment campaigns. Um, I also wanted to give a little bit more context to divestment in general because uh, divestment from fossil fuels isn't the first time divestment has come on campus. Uh, The most notable one is uh, divestment from South African or apartheid South Africa. Um, So in the 80s, Universities across the U.S. and Canada, uh, students were pressuring their administration and their institutions to divest from apartheid South Africa because, um, I mean, I I really, I don't think I need to explain it, but um, it's so immoral (laughs) to uh, be investing in a country that had those policies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the success of the divestment campaigns for um, the anti-apartheid movement Um, was really the inspiration, I think, for a lot of divestment from fossil fuel campaigns um, across Canada and the U.S. Um, So anyway, I guess there's a long history there 
that we really want to honor. There's a legacy there. Um, and yeah, um, I guess to answer your question too, uh, Divest Maune is a small campaign um, in the sense that um, we're a small university. Um, we have, I would say, given on average, anywhere from about like five to 10 core organizers. But then we have such a large like support network outside of it um, that we call on allies and supporters to uh, help us if we're planning like an action or something like that. Um, yeah, and I think we're about six years old now. Six years old. Um, I There is a video online, I think, where I believe it was Divest Mountain Eight. You guys were lying down in the office of someone. Can you explain that? Sure. So that was, when was that? 2017, April of 2017, or March of 2017. <laughs> but essentially what happened was we were about... We were coming close to about five years in our campaign, uh, not really having much um, progress with the ultimate goal of divestment from these like massive fossil fuel companies. Um, so a group of core organizers decided to organize a camp out. Uh, this was in the middle of winter too. Um, so for three nights and four days, we camped out in the middle of campus. Uh, mm. We pitched up tents. We had like a, we had so many events. Like we had a poetry reading, and um, we shared meals, vegan meals, with everyone. What was the temperature like, it, out there? Oh like, man, it was freezing. Right? It was pretty rough. There was <laughs> definitely some nights where it would have to go below minus ten. Mm. Um, we had many of us had winter gear. And this is like Mount Allison University, so it's like a humid, like deep to the bone kind of cold. Yeah, right like there. New Brunswick, maritime yeah. weather. And there was also on the last day a big snowstorm. Uh, so mm. every morning of those three nights, uh, we would wake up with like tons of snow on our tents. And essentially because the snowstorm was coming in and it, there was no way that we would have been able to camp out there. We decided to move the camp out into the office of the president. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we packed up our tents, we brought up our tents inside the office and... So you had a tent inside an office? We had the tent inside <laughs> the office. Okay. Um, and we were like all really like kind of gross and like camping out for like three days and mm -hmm. so tired most of us were still going to school too mm -hmm. so we were just like red-eyed and like just exhausted and as we were singing and chanting as we were like climbing up the stairs to go to the office president robert campbell and his administration um could hear us obviously there's like mm -hmm. 70 people like climbing up your staircase oh those 70 people there was probably around 70 at the beginning up to over 100 um mm -hmm. as the hours went by is there anyone you want to give like a shout out to who was instrumental to part of that movement yeah totally i mean there's so many people but definitely like shout out to my roommate and best friend shannon power <laughs> and uh lewis sobel there were like emma jackson lauren um yeah <laughs> there's and a ton of people so you guys are marching up so we're marching up and he, they lock the door on us okay yeah. that's the first like i see maybe like two seconds of him like just approaching the door and locking it mm -hmm. and 
they go back into their offices like they lock themselves in because they don't want to face students Mm -hmm. it's just like such a sad moment (laughs) right because you're paying tuition and you want to be listened to but they're locking themselves away from you exactly it was just like it's kind of like really you are making like three hundred thousand dollars to do this job yeah and you can't even talk to your students um, that like so clearly care so much about this issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to mention that even though we were camping out there for three days, uh, we didn't hear a single response from administration because that was kind of that's the tactic they use. It's they just like they like to wait us out, and they think that silence can do that. But I mean, we were trying to show even though you try to ignore us, even though you try to silence us, we're gonna come to you. Like mm-hmm. we're gonna come right to your door. So they locked us out and maybe it was like, I don't even know how long it was, but it must have been a couple of hours. Um, We had the idea that maybe we should just like call inside the office Mm -hmm. because the secretary was still in there. Um, So that's how we communicated for a little bit. We had a couple of maybe like five or so phone calls back and forth being Mm -hmm. like trying to negotiate like a meeting or something, uh, which was kind of ridiculous. So essentially what we negotiated was that um, two students, myself and Alex, sorry, I forgot to shout out Alex. He was definitely a big part of this. Um, Alex LaPianca and I had a meeting with him and um, the president's advisory committee, which is essentially um, all the high level administrators. So the vice presidents, the president kind of thing. Got it. We hadn't specifically said that it would, um, that no one else would be there. We just said that it would be two people in the meeting. Um, So the plan was that when they opened the door, someone would just like push open the door and like we would all file in kind of thing. I remember um, like I think a couple of us somehow like got into the other side of the door and they locked, they locked everyone else out. and we had an argument about, you know, what is it that you can say to me and Alex that other people can't hear? There's like no reason for it to be like a private meeting. And that's also not what we're about because we're a collective of students and it is very problematic that, um, you know, uh, an administrator whose job is to work for students can't talk to a group of students. Um, so I, I think at that point he couldn't argue against that. Um, there were like over a hundred people outside that door. Um, so he let them in, but essentially it was just the two of us inside the room with him, with the door opened. Um, and we had a meeting maybe for an hour and it didn't really go anywhere. What'd you guys talk about? We, I mean, we mainly talked about the fact that this was an issue that for over, over half a decade students cared so much about and what it was that was what was the source of resistance coming from the administration to divest Uh, because we didn't know honestly because uh, we know divestment is possible entire countries have divested entire like faith groups have divested Um, entire cities have divested Mm -hmm. and so if all these like massive universities can divest, then surely this 2000 person university can divest too. And it got into kind of, I think, a, a, it rolled into a conversation of um, 
what responsibility that administrators have to students. Like, what did he say in response to that? Like, I mean, he, I just like, I guess I vaguely remember him just resisting the fact that like, he didn't believe it was his job. And I, I mean, I remember him actually saying like, just saying clearly like, nope, that's not my job. (laughs) That's it. And like, there was no really explanation further than that. It was just like, nope. So after kind of this like hour long meeting, that's like clearly not going anywhere. um, He he was saying that he had to go um, to teach a class or something like that. And so What the students did that were kind of outside the room, they laid down um, because months earlier we had organized a occupation of the Board of Regents meeting, which is the highest administrative body in any university. Um, And we kind of paid tribute to that occupation by laying down on the ground and the president stepped on his students as he left. Fast forward to today, like what happened afterwards, like summing it up a little bit. Fast forward today, Divest is definitely still strong, or Divest Mounet is still very strong. Um, We have a new administration in the sense that we have a new president. Um, So that's definitely changes the tone because now there's not that history of divestment with this new president, right? Um, So I believe this year, I mean, it it is now part of a different core organizing group because I've graduated. Um, But, I mean, they're still pushing for it. We're not backing down in terms of our asks. Has any university in Canada or I guess North America like divested entirely? Definitely in North America. Um, In Canada, our trust laws work a little bit differently. Uh, University of Laval have committed to divestment. And they are the first university to commit to the divestment. Yeah. Do you, you have any advice to other divestment groups out there in Canada or any other students who want their campus to divest? Um, I mean, most of universities across um, Canada already have a divestment campaign. So I would say those who are kind of looking to get involved, um, look out for those groups because honestly, like there probably is already a group like that um and I mean I know for just being a part of one for so long too is is that it is very it can feel very defeating because it's been so long it's been almost seven years and we haven't really had major wins um it's been really hard to convince our administrators to divest um but I think that also goes to show how tied up our universities are to big oil Um, And that's why that resistance and reluctance is there is because, for example, at Dalhousie, like Shell gives so much money tied up into research. And when there is big corporations like that, um, that are that have destructive policies. um, I mean, I mean, that goes to show kind of where the power is at. Um, And so I think even though it is hard, it's work that needs to be done. Um, And it's work that we need to keep pushing because, I mean, deconstructing power is very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But, 
but we have to do it. One CBC article listed you as the organizer. Organizing people to take action is one of your main mediums. Could you explain a bit about what it means to be a good organizer and a bad organizer? Because I'm sure, you know, not every single action done is um, most effective in certain situations. Like you said, the one you just listed, I mean, that sounded like a very tense situation with a lot of pressure. Everyone was tired. How do you make the right decisions from the bad decisions? Yeah, and that's something I'm like constantly thinking about. Um, and I'm only like, I just turned 22. I'm super <laughs> young. I am really yeah. in a position of learning. And I'm learning from like movement leaders who have been doing this work for like decades, like decades and decades. Um, and the legacy of also movements like the Black Panthers. And, you know, there's just so much out there um, that we need to kind of pay respects and, and learn from. Um I think in terms of like what, and I'm I'm saying this from, these are mistakes that I've made. Um, <laughs> so like, <laughs> I know what it's like to be a bad organizer because I definitely have made these mistakes. Um, and I think with organizing, we, we want to take into consideration like this like horizontal leadership. Um, so where there isn't a hierarchy. Um, but frankly, that's almost impossible to do in the systems that we live in. It's even though we're trying to do horizontal leadership, there is still an invisible hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that hierarchy is built around um, people who can just like work, work, work and like not burn out or like, you know, it's it's ableist in a way, too, because people who um, might not have or is facing, you know, challenges at home or like with their mental health isn't going to be physically able to put in as much work. Um, that organizing demands from us right because organizing we could work like 24 7 and really not get where we are um, or where we should be or want to be and so I think paying respects to that invisible hierarchy and being aware that it does exist is being the most responsible to it Um, I also think one of the biggest mistakes that the climate justice movement in Canada is making is that we're not centering indigenous rights and indigenous sovereignty as the essence of uh, the things that we should be fighting for. And it's connected to the fact that when we talk about climate justice, we're also talking about migrant justice. We're talking about racial justice. We're talking about housing justice because those are all things that are connected. And um, obviously, of course, economic justice too. And um, when we get fixed up just on the climate and like these very black and white environmental issues, then we're forgetting all of those people who are marginalized in the first place. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's something, those are lessons that the current movement needs to learn um, and we need to do better. Let's talk about the first part of what you just said. So I guess in a sense you were saying that organizing is even like a privilege one criticism that I think I've heard of organizing is that, oh, like, if you're able to organize, then life isn't so bad, and why are you doing this? What do you have to say to those people? Like, that kind of criticism. Yeah, I think some of those criticisms, I, I can see where maybe they're coming from. Um, they're definitely, especially in, like, the environment, environmental movement, they're mm-hmm. definitely a lot of privileged organizers. 
Um, but when we look at into kind of things like racial justice and like um, housing justice, even we have an opioid crisis in Canada, like people who are doing that frontline work is they're fighting for their survival, essentially, and they're fighting for their community's right to survive, right to survive and also beyond just surviving because, you know, we, we need to demand more than that especially with when we look at um, those Indigenous leaders who are on the front line, I don't even think many of them self-identify as organizers because what they're doing is they're doing work for their community. Um, and so I would I think I would reject the notion that all organizers are privileged. Um, organizing work is necessary work. Um, and really the, the proper organizing and the good organizing like we just talked about um, really should be about putting those who have been neglected first uh, for the first time because they've been uh, marginalized for so long. Um, and so if, we, if we're doing that work from that right position, like from that position of, of empowering and um, amplifying those frontline narratives, then I think that's not work where the organizer is in the spotlight. It's the community and the issues that are in the spotlight. Building on that, um, most recently, you were in COP. <clears throat> this is COP24, mm-hmm. right? And you were also at COP22, COP23, and COP24. For those listeners, uh, could you explain what COP is? Sure. Uh, so the COP stands for Conference of Parties. Uh, so this year in Katowice, Poland, was COP24. So it's is that the right pronunciation? Katowice, I, yeah. Is that? Okay, that's a very <laughs> difficult word. I've like, it's been a while for me. <laughs> To learn it also. <laughs> okay, makes sense. <laughs> so essentially, it's the 24th session of these United Nations climate change negotiations. So it's been 24, 24 years of uh, nations around the world uh, recognizing that climate change is literally the greatest threat humanity is facing, and we need to do something about it. It's UN countries, right? Yes. Only. So it's United Nations. Um, I believe, I could be totally wrong, but I believe every country in the world has signed on to the Paris Agreement, uh, which was written in 2015. So that was COP21. Mm-hmm. Um, and the U.S. has just pulled out of that, or they're planning to pull out of it in 2020. Okay, so it's this conference, an annual conference with you know world leaders, representatives from every single country, you were a delegate with the Canadian Youth Delegation. Can you unpackage that for us? Sure. Um, So the Canadian Youth Delegation has been attending UN climate negotiations for over 10 years. Uh, We are the oldest um, ongoing delegation to be attending these conferences, and we have been doing it for so long. Um, Essentially, we have been um, a group that sends grassroots activists from all across Canada um, to attend these conferences to to keep the pressure on our elected leaders that um, everywhere they go, youth will be there to call them out on their shit. What kind of um, uh, grassroots activists are we talking about? So can you name some? Yeah, definitely. Um, so divestments, divestment activists have been um, and divestment organizers have been Um, a big part of who makes up the youth delegation for the past couple of years just because of the visibility visibility there. 
Um, but it also includes people who are doing migrant justice work. Um, so this past year, or I guess this year in Poland, Maya, who works with uh, No One Is Illegal, um, she was part of the delegation. And there's indigenous folks that are also part of the delegation, housing justice organizers, things like that. So you land in Poland with the world leaders, representatives um, talking about climate change. What's your role? I would say in a way it changes year to year depending on who makes up the delegation and what the delegation decides. Um, but essentially our biggest role there is to hold the Canadian government accountable to their international promises, but also keeping domestic messages at the top of their mind when they're making these deals. Um, because these are negotiations, right? Um, so as a wealthy country like Canada is, one of its roles has been to um, essentially water down a lot of climate agreements and pacts. So what I mean by water down is they will try to, or they're, they're attempting to remove strong language that essentially say, you know, polluters have to be held accountable. Um, rich nations have to give and understand the historic re responsibility it has to poor nations because colonialism is very much a thing and there's a reason why poor nations are poor. Mm -hmm. So rich nations have to give a financial they have a financial responsibility to developing countries um, and so when these negotiations are happening um, wealthy countries like Canada the US Australia um, a lot of the EU countries and China are like trying to water that stuff down with US pulling out or their uh, tentative pulling out in your opinion what does that mean so in COP22 I think it was the second day of the conference, um, was the U.S. election. And we woke up that morning. I woke up that morning hearing someone from our, our little Riyadh, our delegation, um, someone was crying because the polls were coming in. And for some reason, none of us expected that Donald Trump would win. A lot of us didn't expect it. And... Um, I remember heading to the conference space that site and just like people were crying everywhere, like people from like the global south whose struggles are so hard already. And then to just kind of have this like fascist leader take the seat of one of the most powerful nations in the country, like in the world, um, was like a slap in the face. It was a slap in the face for the hard work that everyone was doing there. Um, and I mean, he, he was campaigning like that he was going to pull out of the Paris Agreement if he became president. So like we knew that something like that was going to happen. Um, and he's also a climate denier. Mm -hmm. So like in an era where we are facing unprecedented climate effects, we like don't have fucking time to have like someone deny science um it is so dangerous and there are a lot of people who say that like climate deniers should like go to jail because like you are propagating really dangerous information um lives are on the line so you're in poland this year can you talk about what happened this year yeah um to or give... even talk about poland in general <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think like the, the president 
and prime minister of Poland, like just like months before COP24 started, marched in like a fascist rally. Mm-hmm. Um, and Poland is really important to to recognize, especially in world politics right now, because fascist movements are growing everywhere. But Poland is like one of their strongholds in in Europe right now. Um, so, I mean, it was we had a really important conversation about safety before we got there and um, just about, you know, the fact that like as a visible minority, like you might face harassment once you go there. Um, and like essentially now that I mean, Poland was safe in the sense that um, nothing bad happened to me when I was there, but um we were all kind of like very cautious and on high alert. We weren't traveling anywhere by ourselves, especially people of color. But yeah, I guess to talk more about the negotiations, though, a couple of months ago, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so it's a UN body, um, released a report. So these are this is a report written by like leading world scientists. Um, And they're essentially the report is saying that we have 10 to 12 years at a conservative number before we face catastrophic climate disasters and it's irreversible disasters uh, more so than we're already seeing today. So even just like, you know, that number, like 12 years, that's all we have. Like you and I, Matt, will like be in our early 30s. And that is terrifying because that should be a time where like, our careers are taking off and like, you know, like hopefully maybe we'll, we'll be like done paying student debt, but like probably not. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. Mm-hmm. But then we have this number that's saying like, if we don't get to 100% renewables in 12 years, like we might not have a future at all. Um, and it's world scientists that are saying it. It's a UN report that came out. Um, And so it definitely set the stage for urgent and like very, very urgent um, stakes at these negotiations. Um, We really needed ambitious climate policy coming out of Poland, and we didn't get that. Um, Essentially, the the reason for COP24 was to create a rule book for the Paris Agreement. So um, essentially, like, how are we going to get all the things that we want out of the Paris Agreement and how are we going to measure it? Um, And it is not ambitious. It's not where we need to be. And it cements the fact that, you know, the UN um, is a very broken system. It's currently the only thing we really have in terms of, like, negotiating with like all these other countries but um yeah we we need to do better and we need to do more i feel like from what you're saying i felt like the mood of this conference was that like the un kind of rolled over onto its like back and it just kind of um accepted what was that like it like it sounded like a very watered down negotiation exactly what you said um i read that in the conference they actually had like a shrine of like coal yeah Is that, did you see that like, yeah so well, that sounds that sounds like the most sh- weirdest thing ever to have at oh like an goodness. environmental conference i will show you some photos later but mm. essentially the katowice where the conference was at is in the middle of poland's coal country poland is 80 percent generated by coal um and to give you also a bit more context, coal is the dirtiest fossil fuel 
like probably like all fossil fuels are dirty but like coal is like really one of the dirtiest and it's also one of the most dangerous like we're seeing people from um the Appalachian Mountains in the U.S. like coal miners are dying um and communities where these coal coal towns are are dying from health effects and cancer um so in Katowice you're walking around all the buildings look like there's been fire damage because there's just like a layer of like black um, and it wasn't until I saw an article in The Guardian that our friend shared with us where I realized that it was actually set from the coal that was like caking onto these buildings and making them look like we just came out of like World War II. Um, it looked like fire damage and um, I mean, it was rough. There was, uh, I downloaded like this smog app on my phone and it was showing that like every day it was like excessive, like uh, children and seniors should not be going outside type of warnings. Is it a smog app? Yeah, there's a smog app. All right, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, coming from the Maritimes where it's like the air is so fresh and like the ocean's right there and Um, heading right into Poland, like in the middle of their like coal industry, you could taste the coal in your mouth, like as you walk outside. I remember one day the smog was so bad that as soon as I stepped outside, my eyes just like, it was like, I was like crying. Like it was instantaneous just because of like how bad the air quality was. I think not only the air quality, but also since you were in Poland, um, where, as you said, the president marched with fascists, there's such a difference between what you did in Mount Allison, where you could, you know, do more, um, I guess, antagonistic work. But in Poland, there's probably a very balancing between your own safety and trying to call Canada out on his shit. So, like, what kind of actions did you guys take? And, like, how, like, that must have been very difficult to be like, okay, is this safe? Are we going to be detained? Like... How did you even balance that? Yeah. Um, so there was police literally everywhere when we were in Poland. Um, there was police all over the city. Like I'm talking about like every street corner. Um, and the country actually banned all protests outside in public, except for this climate march that happens uh, at every like at every UN climate change conference. It's called like a climate march. Um, So that was the only one they didn't ban. But cops were out in like riot gear. Like it was so freaky. Like there were cops that were clearly cops dressed up in like regular people clothes. And like it was just so clear that like, man, that's like a totally a cop right there. Yeah. Um, So it was definitely dangerous. We knew that. Inside the UN space, there's different regulations. So you have to actually ask uh, permission from UN security if you want to do some sort of protest within the space. Um, And you're not allowed to use the names of countries or politicians. So it really requires creativity from organizers to create a protest or create some sort of action that doesn't call out a single country and doesn't call out um, a single politician. Um, we were a really small delegation this year. We were just a team of three, including myself. And so uh, a big role that the Canadian youth delegation has had at 
for the past 10 years has been to build coalitions with other um, other organizations doing justice work. So um, with a group called Demand Climate Justice and Sustain Us, uh, which is the U.S. equivalent to the work that we do at the CYD, we organized uh, a protest at a U.S. panel that was promoting coal. So it's like, what are you guys doing coming to this like climate change negotiation and trying to promote coal? Like, get out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we don't have time for that right now. We have 12 years. Um, so uh, what we did was um, we filed the room, we packed the room, and we let the like all male panel like say their like words of like climate denying words and after maybe like 10 or 15 minutes of them just like talking um someone just like got up and started laughing like just like howling laughing and then that was the cue that we would also start laughing so then for like a good like minute or two the whole room was just like laughing their ass off Mm. um being like this is a joke right like you are promoting coal like at a climate change negotiation this is the joke um and then what we did was because those spaces are like so dominated by like i mean it was like a group of like justice organizers composed of like you know migrants refugees people of color women um staring at this like all male panel like in their big like black suits um you know u.s politicians whatever and uh, we wanted to transfer that power from them into the hands of marginalized frontline communities. And so we started laughing, and then that was a cue that uh, people would come up. They brought a, they unraveled a banner um, and then uh, pretty much like gave deputations about like why this is like so fricked up and that the power lies in our communities. Uh, We get to decide what happens to our communities and we get to also fight for the things that we really need. Um, And so, um, yeah, a bunch of like frontline organizers said their words and then we kind of like marched out of there. Um, And it's quite televised and like it's pretty popular on media. (laughs) So you can definitely go and watch it. That's very creative. I think the laughing um, is very interesting. And you had to ask permission for to, you know, with the UN security before you did that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so. Actually, can I tell you one more we did? Yeah, go for it. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> We'd love to hear it. Go for it. Um, so on, I think it was the last day. Yeah, it was the last day. Um, one of the most powerful things that I had been a part of was... Um, so essentially, like, the same group of people, like, people who are on the front line, who is, like, doing justice work, um, was, like, okay, the conference is pretty much over, but, like, we need to send, we have to have kind of, like, um, we have to give this final message of hope and, like, also to our world leaders as they go back home that, like, the power is within us and we really need like ambitious climate action like now we don't need it we can't do it in like 2020 or like 2030 like canadian policies say um we need it now and um we also needed it like 
decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what we did was we occupied the main entrance um, with like hundreds of us. Um, and we unraveled these like big banners that said like system change, not climate change. And frontline activists from like the Philippines, like places that are really seeing the first impacts of climate change, uh, got to like give a little speech. And we chanted and we sang. And yeah, it was like, such a beautiful moment of like, wow, like we even at these like very intense, like bureaucratic spaces like the UN like there are so many of us here that are like going back into our communities doing this work and yeah it felt awesome to kind of send off that final message how many people were part of that last I have I mean there were hundreds of us there were yeah and because we were blocking the entrance there were like hundreds of people like that couldn't get through but yeah I mean I, I would have to say there had to be like 300 plus of us yeah it wouldn't be too far to say that, you know, you have a you have chosen a very untraditional path to take your career, to take your life, and where you face many people like of authority, you have been in shouting matches with like people of high authority. Were there moments where you did have self-doubt? I definitely still face some self-doubt internally. Like that's always gonna be a battle, I think, that I'll always have. Um, and I'm sure many organizers have. Um, but I think also like we can't do this work if we don't believe in people power and we, and if we don't have hope that we're right in the way that like we know a better world is possible and because we know that we have to keep continuing to challenge these powers that are saying like, no, we, we don't think a better world is possible or like this is the world that is for them. Like they built this world, um, and it's not a world where like people are flourishing. Um, so I think in that way, like we have hope. Um, and I know that's like a little like roll your eyes, whatever. But like mm -hmm. um, we really can't do this work if we didn't believe that like it could be better. We know it can be better. These powerful institutions have so much to gain from resisting and squashing people who challenge them and campaigns that challenge them and organizations and movements that challenge them. Um, and so there's always going to be that level of confrontation. It's kind of inevitable. Um, and I mean, big oil and especially in Canada, but like one of the most powerful industries in the world, um, one of the most profitable industries in the world. And um, I mean, especially in Canada, but like, Politicians are meeting with like big oil lobby groups like every other day. That's just a fact. Um, they're brokering deals like behind closed doors. And um, it's just we need to like we need to hold our elected governments accountable from that. And, you know, we definitely have to challenge authority. That's also inevitable. But um, that's really the only way we're going to win. Um, is if we do hold our, our governments accountable and um, fighting for like system change that we know can be possible. I know you've faced a lot of opposition, but I think there's also, in recent years especially, there's been a lot of um, proponents of your movement. So 
in Canada, you're one of like the youngest and most public environmental activists, probably. And you were named Canada's top 25 environmentalists under 25. And you were named on CBC's top 13 environmentalists with your name right above David Suzuki's. And you also recently won the 2018 Bauer Youth Award. How does it feel to receive this type of reception after fighting so many battles? It's definitely humbling for sure. Actually, that CBC article, I didn't even know about it until my like friend's boyfriend was like, I think I heard you on the radio. And it's like, I didn't do a radio interview. like, <laughs> And so I, they sent me that email um, of that article, which was super awesome. And um, yeah, that was really humbling for sure. Um, I think I also like, I want to mention that like people who are on the front lines resisting um, and are doing like direct action tactics that like maybe not everyone agrees with, but is so important to do, um, they're not receiving accolades like this. Um, Youth organizing is very trendy right now. Um, It's not necessarily a bad thing. We have to do it right, obviously, but um, young people really are um, taking action into their own hands because, I mean, climate change, it's like we are the generation to be affected by it, right? Um, so we should be at the table. So, I mean, it's it's definitely nice that the attention is focused on young people. Um, I really do believe the solution is going to lie within um, young people throwing out, you know, these like really awful governments. Um, but yeah, it, it does feel nice to to receive, um, yeah, some love. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, During your time at Mount Allison, you had a column where you wrote for the school paper called The Argosy, and um, the column was called Another Feminist Killjoy Writing About Race and Justice. Mm -hmm. In one article, you quoted Sarah Ahmed, and um, do you have the quote? Mm -hmm. Could you you read that? And then um, can you unpackage that afterwards? Yeah, sure. So Sarah Ahmed, we fight because we dream for a more just world. These resources might include a certain willingness to cause trouble, to kill joy, yes, to be misfits and warriors, but they also involve humor, laughter, dance, eating and drinking, all the ways we have to nourish ourselves and each other. We have to do what we can when we can. Um, And then at the end of that, you wrote that the work of a feminist killjoy is never over. Yeah. And also... (laughs) give you some snaps so sarah ahmed is like the og feminist killjoy um she was a uh she's like a scholar activist um and i look up to her a lot that's why i kind of named uh the column after her to pay tribute um and as a feminist killjoy like sarah says we have to kill joy in the sense of um, these topics that we're talking about, like climate change, racial justice, climate justice, is not like fun topics to have. Uh, People don't really like talking about it, Um, but we have to talk about it. And I think that's what she means when she's saying killing joy. We are interrupting spaces where people are trying to push out those conversations. Um, We're trying to bring in these conversations in spaces that aren't meant to have these conversations. They don't want to have it. Um, 
And in that way, we're demanding space for ourselves to be heard. Um, but we're also demanding space where the most marginalized are like finally being listened to. Um, and so, yeah, I love that quote because, um, like Sarah says, like we're, we dream and we're fighting for this because we know that a more just world is possible. Um, to do that, we have to cause trouble. We have to kill joy. Um, but we're going to also do it together. Um, we have to involve humor and laughter and dance and eating in the work that we're doing because we have to like take care of each other because like we're in this for the long run. Um, I know so many organizers and myself included were like so burnt out all the time because we're doing this like unpaid work on top of paid work and school and you know mental illnesses and health and um, family and you know. Um, so yeah, the work of a feminist killjoy is never over because we can always keep going and yeah, we have so much to do. That was my conversation with Tina O. We have a link to the Power Shift Young and Rising event as well as the IPCC UN report and everything else that we talked about. If we miss something in the links, you can probably just Google it yourself. I want to just like put in a little pitch that uh, Power Shift Young and Rising, uh, I, I mentioned it a little earlier, but it's essentially the biggest climate convergence of young people. We're going to be like talking about how we can support each other better in this organizing work but we're also trying to bring people into organizing um, we're going to be learning skills from each other and we're going to be like as Sarah says like eating and having fun and involving humor in this type of work so that's from February 14th to the 18th I don't know when this podcast is coming out but like maybe I'll see you there <laughs> Postical Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Our staff includes Alice Kuhn, Kasun Medigadera, and Rostislav Soroka. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music, and there are other credits on our website. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating, share us, follow us on our social medias. Thank you for listening. We will see you soon.